This is SciBite, episode 131, for May 20th, 2014. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to SciBite, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly science podcast, live on a Tuesday and fresh on a Wednesday over jupiterbroadcasting.com. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our host, Heather. Hey there, Heather. Hey there, Chris. Hey, Heather. Happy science to you. Happy science. So what are we going to talk about today? Today, we're going to take a look at an exoplanet picture, autism spectrum and sensory stimuli, a giant dinosaur in Argentina, viewer feedback, spacecraft updates, curiosity news, and as always, take a week back in history and up in the sky this week. Holy moly, Heather. Well, why don't we kick it off with the news? What is our starting spot tonight, Heather? An international team of researchers announced the discovery and direct imaging of an exoplanet 155 light years away. Oh. So we hear a lot of the, the from the Kepler data and other things. We see, you know, exoplanet, hey, exoplanet, you know, potential discovered. Yes, we've uh, identified it. We've um, confirmed it. Very few planets, we've actually an actual image of it. Not just seeing the mm. light dip from a star, but seeing the light from the planet itself. Right. Now, this is really hard because often they're really close to the star. This is like trying to find a little, um, a little pin light. Right next to a big bulb, <laughs> yeah, a or a strobe, <laughs> yeah, a strobe light going into the sky. You're like, oh, I can't really see that too much. Mm-hmm. Now, in this case, the star is a red dwarf star, but about well, a little over a third the mass of our sun, about a hundred million years old. Now, it orbits this star two thousand times farther the distance between the Earth and our sun. Oh, and its orbit lasts eighty thousand Earth years. This is one of the coolest, like, in temperatures, planets that's actually been directly imaged. Yeah. And we've been able to see that because we've seen um, methane absorption. In order to see that, we know the temperatures where methane can act in that way. So it means it's we have a temperature uh-huh. spectrum yeah. to say it must be this cold. If it's doing that. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. This is pretty much the most distant exoplanet to on a main sequence star, which is kind of the, you know, the general stars they kind of follow the a specific path. There's other kind of oddballs that go off that. But they're expecting this one is probably about 11 times the mass of Jupiter. Mm, so actually just under the mass limit for brown dwarf star. Now, it's kind of this is on the opposite end of, you know, is Pluto a planet? And we have, you know, the <laughs> tiny things. Are, are they a planet? It's on the opposite end of this scale is... A brown dwarf, which means it's a star that hasn't kicked off its ignition sequence. Right. Between that and a really, really large uh, planet, like a super Jupiter. So it's kind of almost on that end of the scale. So it was kind of interesting because it's hard to imagine how this would form in a protoplanetary disk. So you think, you know, the obvious... Well, one of the main ideas about how planets form is, you know, there's a disk around the star, and those kind of clump up in various fashions. Now, in this case, it's kind of hard to imagine it would form in that way. So 
based upon this, it's almost similar into more apt to how a star forms itself. So it'd mm. almost be like a binary star, except that planet, which is still called a planet because it doesn't hit the dwarf star mass. So it's kind of just shy of being a star. So it'd be just shy of being a binary star system. So is it? Ju- so is it just shy of being a failed star? So does that make it a failed yes. planet? <laughs> it's <laughs> no. not quite. It's not quite a regular planet, uh, but no, and it's, it's cold. So it's not. It's, it's not. It's too big and strong for a planet, but not strong enough for for. Well, it's like the big on the really large and strong scale of, scale of planet, yeah. but not quite awesome enough to get the star moniker. Isn't that interesting? Yep. Now, in this specific case, it's actually the whole thing is relatively air quotes nearby now we're able to see this as we're able to spot this because of the relative motion to back down stars and galaxies this is the kind of thing where you hold your arm out you see your finger close your left eye look at through your eye eye you can see that difference in this case what you can do is see either from one side of the earth to the other or even um across the orbit of the earth around the sun you can get a better idea of seeing it now in this case it was you're so because of that we will determine all right they are traveling together hmm. and they're actually so we say you know we say all right yes this was a direct image now a lot of this you know has the state-of-the-art adaptive adaptive optic system and in this case they're actually able to use a number of different telescopes, the Keck Observatory, Joint Canada-France-Hawaii Telescope, the Gemini Observatory, uh, Observatory in Quebec. So all of these different telescopes put together through more standard imaging waves oh. were able to see, um, carefully choose specific wavelengths where this planet's colors, per se, uh, were very much were very unlike other objects like stars and galaxies. So they could kind of hone in on a specific uh, wavelengths of light in order to catch this planet through direct imaging. Hmm. And it was sort of, if they're in this group that's very um, speeding by very fast, there's a type of stars that are really booking it across the sky as far as we can see. And so in this case, it was, they're both traveling through that kind of, uh, speed zone, the fast lane. Mm-hmm. So we're able to see, all right, well, they're both traveling that way, but are they really together? And through the uh, relative motion, so you could see, uh, you know, that's the left eye versus the right eye. So you can actually see that they're kind of traveling together. Now, uh, Noel in the chat room asked again, uh, is it a failed binary star system? Well, again, that's kind of on the fact of this is just sh- the it's just shy of a brown dwarf and the way it is and the way it's formed it looks like star formation would fit it better mm. now it could be that you know somehow that it um started closer to the star and sort of inched its way out to a larger orbit through various planetary dynamics you know planets um trying to you know, shuffle their way around gravitationally, throwing them out in orbit. Could it have somehow captured this? Probably not, since it's so far out. Um, now, how we were able to see it, uh, 
back from the chat room, is because it lets off specific wavelengths. It's getting something, it's close enough to that star where it's getting some amount of light and we see uh, the methane. So we're able to say is it just through specific wavelengths of light we're able to see um, the spectrographic analysis saying, hey, there's a little something there, it has to do with methane, guess what, that is a planet. So we're seeing it, how fast they're moving, how far away it is, seeing kind of what's there. And through all of this, it's making a guess as to exactly what we're seeing. Well, what, what kind of, uh, what I found interesting is you mentioned they were using essentially standard imaging techniques, but then because they're able to share and collaborate the data, uh, they can sort of put together all these images into one suit, some, you could almost call it one super picture. Yes. And uh, what what is that's not a particularly wholly new thing, especially for this show. But what I do find, I, I just the um, the acceleration that brings to astronomy is going to be so amazing as we get more bandwidth and we have more sharing and more systems to do it. And I think back to those original pioneer astronomers who, you know, would make a discovery and then write it down in their journal by themselves in whatever village they lived in yeah. and it might just stay there until somebody wrote up a book about them and went through their journals or something like that. And now yeah. today, you know, the day of a suspicion or a question, uh, one astronomer can reach out to another, they can collaborate with the data and they can make a massive discovery like this. Yeah. If you get some interesting enough, something you call up, you know, the people at other major telescope that have you know, observatories that have similar equipment to what you say. And so you're like, Hey, we found this really cool thing. Uh, whenever you guys get a chance, let us know if you have back data in the catalog for it or when you get a chance, can we, you know, grab a, a little bit of the time off that telescope to see if we can see it there, too. Yeah. Hmm. Well, very interesting. Heather, any other thoughts on that one? No, just kind of looking forward to uh, more collaborative data. Yes. What comes next? All right. Well, then let's just take a quick pause right here. I got a pro tip. This is this is a Jupiter Broadcasting pro tip for the audience out there. If you want in on the inside scoop on what's going on at Jupiter Broadcasting and our various shows, go over to bit.ly slash Signal. That's our newsletter. We, we used to send it out monthly. Now we just kind of send it out when we really have got something we want you guys to know about. Oh, like a, like a certain Happy Science Podcast uh, three-year anniversary. That might be something that would be of the subject of that newsletter. However, if Chris is a dope and gets the numbers wrong, then that might be an error in the newsletter. But then you would only get to find out if you got that newsletter. So go over to bit.ly slash Signal. We won't spam you. We'll just give you updates on what we're up to. And we'll probably have some stuff about the studio over the summer and some new shows we're launching here on the network soon. We'll be in there. And, of course, other special events like anniversaries of SciBite, which is next week. So... Be sure you join us live next week for episode 132 of the SciBite program. It will be SciBite's third anniversary. Unlike what I said earlier, which then Angela put in the uh, newsletter, which was totally my fault. I take all, all blame. So uh, I hope you can join us live next week for SciBite for the third anniversary. And if you want to find out about other tidbits like that, go to bit.ly slash Signal. And with that done, it's time for the news bite. Okay, so we've got a study that kind of looks into why kids with autism might be so oversensitive to certain types of stimulus, don't we? Yes, uh, it's a new small study, but it shows that specific areas of the brain in children diagnosed with uh, autism spectrum, it's overreacting to sensory stimuli. And it kind of helped explain why um, 
those ki- uh, those people are five times more likely mm. than others to be overwhelmed by these quote everyday sensations. Mm. Now it helps um, explain why that the brain is actually doing specifically something. It is you know what they call sensory overresponsitivity, and it's recognized as one of the core features of autism spectrum. Now what they did was they had 32 children and teens. Half had been diagnosed with autism spectrum. The rest were, you know, typically developing kids matched in age. And then they went through and they had them rest in a fMRI machine. Now, this is the kind of MRI that actually can see brain activity in real time. And then they, what they did was they touched them with, you know, scratchy wool sweater, played some loud traffic music, mm. or did them both at the same time, and sort of repeated these conditions four times in a row for about 15 seconds. Now, what it showed was the brains of children with autism spectrum reacted much more strongly than the brains of the typically developing. Now, what happens are two specific areas that were the most hyperactive were the primary sensory cortex, which is responsible for processing sensory information, and the amygdala, which is involved with emotional regulation. So it's these two areas that say sensory information, so that is way off the charts, you get much more sensory input. And then the emotional regulation is also off the chart. Yeah. So you have this... double whammy. Yeah, so that could be, you know, that's a reason for an outburst. Now, these are actually even much more intense when experienced two sensations at the time. We know that there's loud sounds and, you know, scratchy wool. So the more of these uh, stimulations that are sort of way over responding in the brain, it gets much worse, mm. obviously. Yeah. It sort of puts, you know, to shame any, you know, doubt to say, no, it's just some, you know, pickiness. It's just some finickiness. weird thing. Finickiness with yeah. someone with aut- autism spectrum. No, this is Signal the brain overload. Is, yeah, this is the brain specifically showing there's an overload. And in that overload, during that time, there's also a trigger in the emotional regulations regulator. So there's kind of that kind of tri- trips off. Right. So, yeah, boy, that's a bad situation. So it's, it's just one of these studies where we've seen this. You know, it is known kind of in autism spectrum. You know this happens. You know, it's typical. There's not really, you know, a lot that you can do about it. And now the, they're showing some, you know, brain scans that say, yes, this is why, you know, we see this. And it's not just you can write it off. So it is it literally is it's just somewhere on that spectrum you start getting your brain participating in different factions that are not really conductive for being able to handily handle some of this sensory hmm. data and being able to keep in check hmm. the emotions at the same time. Yeah, uh, and the fact that this does sit on a spectrum so you can have different levels of intensity or conditions that trigger it. I think also complicates people's understanding of it yes. perhaps and maybe is what is introduced the finickiness because if someone's on you know sort of the lesser extreme end if they're on the opposite end of extreme i don't know what you would call that but they're mm-hmm. maybe they're i don't they're, they're, the, the milder yeah they're on the mild end of the spectrum thank you that's what i was trying to say uh you could see how people might just write them off as as finicky perhaps yeah and i mean there's also specifically in those ranges where it's someone is sound sensitive where it's you know we can be you know, say two people on the quote-unquote same area of the spectrum. One of them might be far more 
um, susceptible to sound or to light. And it's just sort of this case where the brain is acting possibly different at those different spectrums, parts of the spectrum for different people. But it's, yes, your brain is definitely doing something, you know, specifically shown. Right. Yeah. Well, Heather, I have some good news. The band just got here. Let's bring him in for the two by news. Okay, Heather, what do we have in the two-byte news today? Scientists have identified a new diplodocoid, that's like brontosaurus, apatosaurus, that type of thing, in the, that lived in the early Cretaceous period from Argentina. Now, this is really, really big dinosaur. These are the dinosaurs that had large bodies, extremely long necks and tails. <laughs> now, in this case, this is... Um, the femur itself is much, I mean, far taller than a person. This is a really? huge skeleton that they found. It is the the largest sort of in this area in Argentina. And it's not only the size of it that is impressive, it is that um, the plot, that this type of dinosaur lived much later in North America than uh, the ones that were in Africa. So, you know, they were in different parts of the world as, you know, tectonic shift was going on. Now, apparently that these were much, you know, they lived much longer. And that so it wasn't just sort of a global all at once downfall of them. So it's kind of timing wise. We see, wow, they were here much later than we thought. Ah. And this is a much larger dinosaur than we thought. <laughs> That's than one big see. dino. <laughs> yes. 130 feet long. It's very, very long. There, this, there is you have a, to check out some of the pictures. Yeah, Heather links in the, in the show notes a YouTube video, and they have the dinosaur standing next to an elephant, and the elephant looks like a mouse. <laughs> yeah, and it stacks uh, like 15 or so elephants, and that's sort of saying oh all goodness. of these elephants lined up together is kind of the mass. Wow. Well, how about that? Now, Heather, uh, I've got some good news for you. I recently redid the Cybite 2000, so uh -huh. that way, right next to this button. Now, well, oh, no. on, now, wait a second here. This, oh, no. Hmm. Actually, I forgot to label this. This is either going to destroy the battery in every cell phone in the United States uh -huh. or it's viewer feedback. Let's find out. Oh, goodness. Oh. You're scared me all the time. I forgot that Rekai added that destroy all cell phone batteries function to the side by 2000. So we did I get some viewers. Yeah, thank you. That would be good. So uh, viewer Mark sent us some feedback, didn't he? Yes, from the contact form on the website, pointing out a story about the Mars plant experiment. There's researchers that are proposing putting a plant growth experiment on NASA's next Mars rover that's going to be launching in the mid-2020s. Now, this is one case where I kind of know about this general project because NASA put something out and said, hey, all you small businesses, all you medium business, everybody large, what are your ideas to put on this rover? Mm -hmm. You know, it has to be in this kind of a size, you know, constriction, kind of weight constriction. What do you think? Just sort of all these different ideas. Now, in this case, there are some diners, uh, designers say this kind of thing could help, you know, lay the foundations for colonization of Mars. Now, it's not saying that's going to dig a hole and you're going to have the little arm reach out and plant a seed and, 
you know, pat the dirt down over it. What this is going to do is sort of a self-contained um, environment where it's, you know, a square, a cube, should I say, where it would employ this clear CubeSat box fixed to the exterior of the rover. And then that would hold Earth air, about 200 seeds of a small flowering plant, uh, Arabis bitus piss. Oh. And it's commonly used in scientific research um, for that kind of a thing. And then they would allow them to receive water as soon as the rover touched down on Mars. And then it would be allowed to kind of see what the growth was over two weeks or so. Now, it would kind of provide an organic level test of how Earth plants deal with Mars radiation levels on the ground. Ah, uh, yes. And low and the low gravity. It's one-third gravity. You can have various radiation levels. So it's saying, okay, the gravity in some of these locations, a third up to up to 40% as strong as that of Earth. So could this would be the first multicellular organisms to grow, live, and die on another planet at all. So this is kind of an idea. They say, hey, this would be cool if we could do this. Now, this is in no way absolutely certain. There, <laughs> This is just one idea out of thousands that are coming into NASA. Kind of love that, is, though. But it is a very interesting experiment to kind of see wow, that would be kind of cool to see what happened. Yes, that's what I was thinking. I'm like, yeah, actually, I would very much like to see that. And uh, I wonder like, if the lower gravity would mean the plants wouldn't have to be as well-nourished to be able to grow as tall. That sounds maybe not. I don't know. I just wonder if there would be a difference in, in how they would respond. To yeah, there's a... some plant grows on the space station with uh, you know microgravity, and then it's... Oh, yeah, sure. The seeds, they want a direction for gravity. Yeah. They want to be able to say, hey, roots go down that way, plant goes up that way. Gotcha. All right, Heather, well, this next button will either buy Twitch for $2 billion right out from under Google, or it's a uh -huh. spacecraft update. Let's find out. Oh, good. Okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's a spacecraft update. And I got to tell you, it's good because I didn't have the billions of dollars to buy Twitch. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. That, that worked out in multiple ways. So uh, what is our update? All right. The New Horizons spacecraft is heading out towards Pluto. The Smithsonian future here is a, there's a festival in Washington, D.C., and at that they announced that NASA has agreed to upload a digital crowdsource message to the New Horizons spacecraft after it has completed its science. Oh. So if all goes according to plan, New Horizons will be the fifth man-made object to travel beyond the solar system. There was Pioneers 10 and 11, Voyagers 1 and 2, and... This is the only one that we've launched without some sort of message of mankind. Uh, the Pioneers 10 and 11 had just sort of some plaques. Um, a lot of people know about the golden disks on Voyager 1 and 2. Now, in this case, New Horizons' budget was really tight. Um, there was limits on time, so they went, okay, we got we to gotta cut this off at some point. So they weren't able to do some sort of mis mis uh, message, sort of message in a bottle or anything. Now... Uh, John Lumberg, he actually, this is a guy who worked really closely with Carl Sagan on the Voyager Golden Records. He kind of thought, hey, there's nothing, you know, solid, but what if we're able to just upload some, you know, some sort of message on a computer after it's done with its science? It's not going to be really doing anything else. So NASA said, yes, well, that's interesting. Show, uh, show if you have some, you know, the public likes the idea. 
That was in September. By February, there were 10,000 people from 140 countries that said, actively signed up, said, yes, we want to do this. Right. Now, this is all, you know, it's not a perfect system. This is sort of, as long as the radio's working, you know, they're, they're not sort of really in a rush to send it. Even though it's so far away, the download times are going to be like dial-up <laughs> internet. But as long as the radio is working, they can send it. It may just take a while. Now, it's not going to last nearly as long as the um, metal or the discs attached to Pioneer or Voyager because there might be some sort of cosmic radiation. It'll eventually corrupt the spacecraft's electronic memory. Aww. But it's sort of the idea Yeah. that says uh, it's going to officially launch in August. And this is very different from the ones done on Voyager. Anyone on Earth can upload a potential, some potential content. They don't know whether it's going to be images, sounds, um, you know, text messages. None of it's been finalized. But anyone on Earth can upload potential comment, content. And then everyone is going to be able to vote on what to include. Now... The team is obviously going to provide, you know, some overall architecture. Get, you know, they have to get it into 100 megabytes of memory. Okay. It's going to be quite a bit of compression uh, involved. Yeah. And careful selection and how okay. it's going to be done. Okay. But so this is also the, you know, they're going to do the flyby of Pluto and get the scientific data back from that. Now... That'll take almost a year to get all the data back from that flyby, just because it's gonna blow itself up with all this instrumentation. And then it'll take a while to send it by dial-up all the way home, and it won't have any room in its memory until all of that's done. And then there are also ideas of, hey, could they be able to swing by another object out there in the outer solar system? On your way to say, you know, so say, hey hey, we want to actually try to do some science data over there. So they'll be able to do that. And so the message will be kind of uploaded, we delayed again. But as long as we can contact it, then it can go. We can send the data. But it's kind of interesting just because it's sort of a crowdsourced idea that even you can help send a message to the outer solar system. I like that, Heather. And while we're up in the cosmos, why don't we head over and do a curiosity update? Are you ready? Let's go. And lift off of the Atlas V with curiosity. Touchdown confirmed. We're safe. Yeah, buddy. Yeah, that's a wheel. Yeah. Okay, Heather. How is our favorite rover doing? Alrighty. The Curiosity rover has used its little Mars hand lens imager instrument on its robotic arm. It is, you know, we drilled the hole. We've drilled the hole last week. Um, we've gotten some sample material from inside the hole. We've been able to zap a couple of target points in it with a laser. <laughs> what that'll let you do is say, all right, here's all these different um, you know, layers of the rock as you're going in. So you can get data on the different layers saying, hey, maybe there's something odd going on at one specific location. So if you see something in the you know, data from processing the dirt, you'd be like, huh, there's a spike of something in that that's really weird. Then you can go back and say, oh, there was this layer here in the rock that was very different. That's probably where it came from. Now what they've been able to do is take uh, the image that you see on in the show notes and on the video is actually taken at night. What they're able to do 
do is illuminate this, they can get a much better idea of exactly where the laser was pointed, how everything is laid out. Now, you do it at night because there is a flash image. There, you know, there are LED lights. They're able to light it up without the shadows that you would get in daylight. Ah. Daylight would have much stronger shadows. Right. Now, with these LEDs, you can kind of have a color image there so you can take the image of it, be able to see much more of it, and kind of be able to get an idea of every, a much closer idea of all the different layers that you drilled through. Hmm. That's a pretty cool piece of setup that thing has. Lasers, LED lights. I'm pretty yep. jealous. This thing gets to go to another planet and then dig around in the dirt and take pictures of it. That's kind of like I think if you told my son Dylan that's what the uh, rover was doing up on Mars, he'd think it has the best job ever. Well, Heather, come over here and jump in the brand new okay. revamped time machine now powered by my charcoal barbecue coals. Let's go. Oh, yeah. Oh, see, this is nice now. I'll admit it does smell a little bit like a barbecue here, but because of the time distortion effect, we were able to just slow cook a set of baby back ribs in just a few seconds, what at least appeared to be a few seconds to the viewer at home, because we landed 338 years ago, May 26th, 1676. Heather, what happened this week in science? Lewin Hulk, I probably said his name really wrong, Animaculus. Anyway, this guy had a hobby of making microscopes, handmade linen lenses to observe water he was running off of a roof during a heavy rainstorm and so he saw it and he said you know in his words like little animals so he saw life in the runoff water oh sure that wasn't present in pure rainwater so that discovery in itself said hey bacteria doesn't fall from the sky is attract you know it's picked up by things on the ground or roofs or right. something in that manner. Right now, some of these were crazy ways you had to make these kind of lenses and microscopes. Now, when you make a ball of molten glass and it's inflated like a balloon, small droplet of hot fluid collects at the very bottom of the bubble. Now he could use these droplets as microscope lenses to view things on you know as a microscope. Very crude nature. But it allowed him to see microscopic life and kind of say, it's not falling from the sky magically. It's here on Leeuwenhoek. Uh, thank you, Leroy, from the chat room. <laughs> I couldn't have done any better myself, Heather. So good job on you. All right, well, let me recalibrate the uh, side by 2000 that way. We can look up into the sky this week. What's going on? On Thursday, May the 22nd, in the fading twilight of our evening, you'll see Mercury low in the west-to-northwest west horizon, about two and a half fist widths to the lower right of Jupiter, which will be nice and bright, easier to see, spot quickly. On Friday, May the 23rd at 3 a.m., there could possibly be a new meteor shower. I have no idea of the quality it's going to be. Earth is going to be flying through the debris trail of comet uh, 209P linear, which the comet itself is going to make its closest approach in uh, May 29th. It'll be very, very faint kind of telescope uh, image. Uh, but it's, you know, they say, you know, it could be nothing or it could be quite a display. So if you're up at 3 a.m. on Friday, <laughs> definitely try to peek out a window, check it out, or hope that somebody makes some imaging and pictures of it, then we'll be able to check that out. That's my route. 
Yep. On the whole, planet-wise, Mercury set at the failing twilight in the north, in the west to northwest, far to the lower right of Jupiter, and it'll be kind of fading harder to see as the week kind of progresses along. Venus is our morning star, low in the eastern horizon. Mars is also going to be at twilight, high in the southern sky. It's going to be popping out, setting in the west just before dawn. And now we've been talking about Spica, the blue-white star, blue star, kind of a nice combo. But now it's getting farther and farther to the lower left of Mars. So they're kind of spreading apart, not quite the, the fancy show that they have been doing. Of course, uh, Jupiter is also hanging out there in the west-northwest area and in the uh, twilight. And it's going to be pretty easy to spot. Nice bright star right there in the twilight. Nice. That's a good sky, Heather. It's a good sky. I can't complain about that sky. Well, Heather has all of that listed right out on our show notes. Go over to jupiterbroadcasting.com and look for SciBite 131. That's this here episode. And then scroll down towards the bottom. Everything's linked in there in chronological order that she talked about it. Lots of good stuff, additional resources, especially if you're on the audio version. She's got some really great great visuals and YouTube links and stuff like that as well. All right, Heather, is there anything else we want to cover this week? A reminder to people, next week... It's going to be our third year anniversary show. Yay, that's right. Yay, we'll have a little little something I'll be speaking of probably. Yeah, a little, a little uh, maybe a little retrospective of, uh, of a sense, yeah. of a kind, of a variety. And we'd love to have you join us live for that one. Uh, so join us over at jblive.tv. We do this show on a Tuesday. And you can get the time over at jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar. Don't forget you can follow Heather. She's JB underscore Mars underscore base on Twitter. And you can email us. Go over to jupiterbroadcasting.com. Click the contact link and choose SciBite from the drop down. Heather, thanks for the great show. Thank you. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in this week's episode of SciBite. We'll see you right back here next week. Next week.